This podcast is an initiative of Call to Ed and is supported by an independent educational grant from Ipsen. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution, employer, organization, or other group or individual. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Call to Ed website. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is a podcast recapping the recent findings on primary biliary cholangitis during International Liver Congress 2022, just happening in London. My name is Jan Schattenberg. I'm an academic hepatologist based at the University Medical Center in Mainz, Germany. And it's a pleasure and honor to be joined here today by Dr. Chris Cowdley, the director of the Liver Institute Northwest and a clinical professor at College of Medicine at Washington State University. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Jorn. And it's my pleasure to be recapping with you today some key findings related to primary biliary cholangitis from the recent ILC 2022. From a very personal note, at the beginning, I think it was great to be back in person and actually meet. That was a real highlight beyond the content, of course. Yes, I agree. And Jorn Easel did a wonderful job in putting on the ILC first live conference. So uh, congratulations. Great. Thanks. I I am glad you enjoyed it. Let's dive right into topic because we have a limited time today and there's a lot of stuff to be covered here. You know, let me start with the diagnostics uh, or the diagnosis around primary biliary cholangitis. Maybe you can give me a quick idea, uh, A, on what you're doing in your practice today, or maybe uh, some data you've seen at ILC. What's new on diagnostics? A very timely question, Jorn, because as we know, the use of ELISA-based inexpensive antibody tests has sort of provided some confusion, at least in the United States, because historically we used to get the results in immunofluorescence or using some sort of immunofixation test where you got the results in a titer uh, for any mitochondrial antibody. Now, increasingly, we get a number in the US. So you order an AMA test and you get a number that could be 20, 30, 40, 60, 80, et cetera. And those who are not very experienced actually sometimes can get confused because at low levels of the ELISA antibody, there are significant false positive tests. So one of the things I try to encourage people is to put the test in the clinical context. Uh, Does the patient have a cholestatic pattern of liver abnormalities? Is there other history of autoimmune diseases, et cetera? One nice advance that has happened in the US uh, is through some of the large commercial labs. We can now order a PBC panel, which allows us to get a more specific test, uh, as well as the PBC-specific ANA test, i.e. the GP210 and SP100 antibodies, which are available at one blood draw. So this has made a big advance, but certainly the availability of the inexpensive ELISA test has made it easier on the one hand to order the test, but also more confusing for practitioners. What do you find in Europe? Is it a similar issue or are people more sophisticated about how they run the AMA test? I think we've been in that um, arena for some time now. And as you said, I get my reportings as you've just described it with the um, dilution assays here. And I think there is maybe less of a confusion because there wasn't really a change for us. I think one of the important aspects is that I do get a lot of positive AMA tests in the absence of a cholestatic pattern of liver injury, as you've just described. And I think we have to remember that this is not a test with a very high sensitivity meaning or positive predictive value, meaning that it's not the AMA in the absence of elevated, let's say, alkyne phosphatase that defines disease. Now, that could be a population that 
potentially progresses to PVC at one point, but those are not um, patients we have to consider for treatment. And I think that's in the in the realm of diagnostics, something we're seeing pretty common in clinical care uh, in terms of referral. Yeah, it's an excellent point. In the US, I don't know about in Germany, but there's a reflex to order every test for every liver disease in a patient that presents for a workup. So you get patients with a hepatocellular pattern of injury, no cholestatic pattern, who get an AMA test or patients who get an AMA test for uh, workup of unexplained liver test abnormalities. And obviously those tests are much more difficult to interpret. But I guess from our standpoint, the more people are thinking about PBC and ordering the test for PBC, the better, because you can make a wrong diagnosis is better than making no diagnosis. Let's move on to talk about some of the new exciting data presented at uh, ILC. And there were really a few different buckets, if you will. I think we are seeing now a greater emphasis on quality of life and patient-reported outcomes. And we're also seeing more work being presented in terms of how to interpret incomplete response to treatment with Urso. There were a couple of posters that I thought were quite interesting. One poster talked about whether patients should be given a specific exercise program and actually showed some promise in terms of targeted exercise possibly being useful to help patients in terms of their quality of life. Uh, similarly, there is another poster on sort of a well-being and a mindfulness approach to treating PBC. And that also, I think, was quite promising. So one of the things that's interesting, and this was pointed out by Dr. Dyson in a very useful session was we focus on biochemical test abnormalities, but I think the patients are much more concerned about their symptoms, particularly pruritus and fatigue. And the fatigue may be related to pruritus, but may not be related to pruritus. So uh, do you have any comments about some of these posters? I think uh, we're seeing a real focus now on patient reported outcomes and measuring quality of life. And this may represent an important alternative pathway for development of new treatments. I'm aligned with you here. You know, we have to remember we have a highly effective first-line therapy. Many patients respond to first-line therapy, which is UDCA and has been around for some time. I know uh, you've been, you know, very centrally involved in some of these initial trials, and uh, it's just great to have that. However, even in patients that do respond to UDCA biochemically, we do have a certain underlying impairment in quality of life, as you highlighted, mostly in the arena of uh, fatigue, but also pruritus can be uh, a persistent problem. Now, one of the questions is, of course, how intensely do I have to press for the normalization of alkyne phosphatase? And I think, uh, you know, when we consider second line therapy, we're typically choosing that 1.67 cutoff of alkyne phosphatase normalization the biochemical side, but there have been some lower cutoffs. And I, I think one of the posters uh, that you also mentioned showed us that we do not necessarily to have to thrive for complete normalization, um, but it would be important to put the patients in the category below 1.5 uh, alkyne phosphatase. I think this is something where they supported this with some data. Now, the other aspect you mentioned, the quality of life and uh, what can we as physicians do um, to support quality of life for our patients? Uh, I found this very interesting that the UK group um, started advising patients to actually work out and do physical exercise. Um, there's been a number of studies that shown or that have linked um, sarcopenia and muscle loss, in particular in progressive disease, to increased symptom burden. We know there is more disease progression. 
So by implementing an exercise program, which was fairly simple and straightforward, I think it's something they did uh, on their own in their home. And they called this um, weighted aerobic exercise. They checked on them by weekly telephone calls. So I think that's also an important element to support the patient and show them that you're there following them, motivate them, try to ask for barriers and implementation, these type of things. But the most striking aspect here is they could even measure improvement in, in the PBC40 fatigue domain over this short treatment period of 12 weeks and also uh, improve sleep um, quality or uh, the hours of uh, that, that the patient slept. So I think by applying a very simple measure, physical exercise at home, maybe a little supervision and follow-up to support them, we had impact on these measures, uh, not necessarily pruritus in this, but fatigue. And maybe you have any ideas in terms of sarcopenia and disease progression, because we know that's been in terms of liver disease, a critical aspect where this could be supported. But I found it interesting that uh, the patients reported less symptoms. Yeah, no, that was an excellent summary. Thank you for that. I was particularly struck by this poster that came out of Newcastle, where they had interviewed almost 600 patients. And I think this really informs clinical trial development. So for example, what they found was the prevalence of fatigue and brain fog were even higher than classically reported. Patients actually prefer electronic symptom reporting and thought that this would standardize data collection much more. And a daily treatment for brain fog and fatigue that made respondents consistently even a little bit better was preferable over treatment that improved symptoms for short periods of time. So patients would like an incremental increase in quality of life that lasted as opposed to ups and downs. And then with regard to pruritus, patients appear to clearly prefer a pill form as opposed to the current approaches, which of course include either taking up to 24 tablets of cholestyramine a day or the powder, which is difficult to uh, ingest. So this was a really useful abstract for me because I think this will inform those of us that are trialists and also our industry partners in designing clinical trials. Yeah, let me just revisit one abstract very briefly, Chris. I think, uh, you know, the concerns about data safety and data electronic capturing are great with sponsors, in particular in the EU. And as you said, if this is uh, something the patient actually asks for, it's something where we really have to focus on and move this forward. Yeah, I think it's a, uh, it's a wonderful thing to see that although we get excited about improvement in biochemical tests, our patients want to feel better and want to improve the quality of their life. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the guidelines and see how the guidelines are changing. And easel guidelines, I think, are a few years old. I'm sure there's a new guideline update in plan. The ASLD guidelines were written in detail in 2018, and it's now called the guidance as opposed to a guideline. And in 2021, there was an update to the ASLD guidelines that suggested that, in fact, fibrates could be considered as an alternative to obeticolic acid as second-line therapy in patients who are either UDCA non-responders or incomplete responders or intolerant. Uh, of course, uh, fibrates are off-label at the present time, and uh, at least in the U.S., they have a, a warning about use in liver disease and kidney disease which of course can be a little bit confusing to our patients, but certainly the body of data with bezofibrate in particular, which is not available in the US, but available in Japan and Europe and other places, uh, has certainly increased the enthusiasm and also less concerns about safety. What is your stance on the guideline update and do you have any insight or comments on how 
ESL guidelines and ASLD guidelines may differ. I think your comment on fibroids is, uh, is timely and it uh, speaks to the necessity to develop second line therapies and the um, uh, willingness of physician and patients to actually be subjected to an off-label uh, therapy is right down that line. And I think therefore uh, the class of PPARS is clearly something I'm very excited about. There's been, as you said, generated a lot of data on the fibroids, base of fibroid, particular from France and, and uh, Japan. As such, there's a high uptake in Europe. And I have to say, on the other hand, it's somewhat um, bothersome that I cannot prescribe them in label, meaning coverage and also insurance or, you know, in terms of uh, safety issues. So I am a little concerned and I discuss this intensely before I would consider something like this in, in a patient. Having said that, even basafibrate in Germany is not always available. So sometimes physicians switch to other fibrates that have not been studied, uh, phenofibrate. But then again, you, you, you have to say, you know, how strong is the evidence in that arena? So uh, overall, I'm very excited to see PPARs uh, to be effective also in terms of symptom burden. And I think it's something we're going to see more data coming out and that'll be very exciting for me. And in terms of differences with guidelines, I think Europeans have been a little bit more liberal on, on recommending or thinking about off-label treatment here. And the U.S. has kind of uh, followed in that uh, arena. I don't see big differences, uh, maybe some notions in terms of you know, social, cultural aspects, nothing, nothing groundbreaking. Yeah. So it sounds like your point of view, uh, Jorn, is similar to mine, which is you would consider using a fibrate, but it's not as easy, at least in Germany, as, as it may be in France to prescribe it. And you would like to see more data with regard to safety and efficacy. Uh, and of course, uh, a number of both pan PPARs as well as specific targeted agonist Delta and Alpha Delta are currently in phase three trials. So that would, uh, I think, be very informative uh, to us. Uh, so I'm going to kick it back to you here to comment on the new approach to treatment that is being developed, which I think is good for patients. We have some data on linarixabat, which uh, was a study in the Glimmer study, uh, a phase 2b study for pruritus in PBC. And what's interesting is we're now seeing uh, studies being developed really focused on the symptom burden as opposed to biochemical response. And uh, this was shown as a poster and uh, really informed the phase 3 trial, which is currently recruiting. Uh, what are your thoughts about the IBAT inhibitors? And uh, do you see a role for them in combination with traditional quote-unquote, disease-modifying agents. Chris, this is uh, an exciting field to me. It introduces a totally new MOA to uh, this disease, which is a rare um, orphan disease. And I think it's great to see more companies venturing into this field, mainly because uh, based on the burden the patient really um, experiences. And um, beyond um, the pruritus, which is mainly addressed by um, those um, studies in the linarixabat poster, um, shows a nice response in terms of itch scales, for example, you get a pretty fast uptake here and, and an improvement. I've done some uh, scores, the uh, monthly itch score, for example, uh, showing an improvement. Um, beyond that, and I think one of the quality of life posters we discussed in the, in the beginning, there's also always the aspect of sleep disturbances in these patients. So I'm convinced that this will read through and actually help improve the quality of life in our patients. And the other study I mentioned briefly was a post hoc analysis um, 
given by David Jones uh, on the Tanaxip, uh, which is an NDPH uh, oxidase inhibitor. And here, um, fatigue was specifically assessed that they could show a benefit. So for me as a clinician, uh, it's exciting to see some new MOAs emerging that could supplement uh, standard of care, even in those patients that might be responsive to first-line therapy, but have a continued impairment in quality of life. Um, sleep disturbances, I think, is... Uh, under-considered pruritus is the more obvious quality of life impairment, but there's more to be learned. Yeah, no, that's a great summary. And of course, with some of the newer agents, we are quite enthusiastic that they may not only modify disease, but also may improve pruritus. So that's certainly awaited with, uh, with enthusiasm. Uh, so let's uh, move on the last few minutes here and talk a little bit about your personal view and I'll share my personal view regarding uh, what are our endpoints uh, in, in treating patients. I thought that the uh, having been part of the global PBC study group, uh, I certainly can be accused of being biased, but I certainly think that uh, the GLOBE score and the contributions of the global PBC study group has, has really sort of changed how we approach PBC and played a role in the approval of obeticolic acid, a second line treatment based on alkaline phosphatase reduction. We're now seeing a change in the thinking, and I fully subscribe to this, which is why do we stop when we have a alkaline phosphatase down to less than 1.67 times ULN and bilirubin less than upper limit of normal? Maybe we should be aiming for deep remission or biochemical remission, and we have multiple drugs now that can uh, help us achieve this. What are your thoughts in the closing minutes about kind of your view towards what should be our goals of treatment? This is great, Chris. And I think for an orphan disease, it was so important to actually have a surrogate that's linked to outcome. And uh, as you highlighted, the UK PBC good score uh, clearly um, did that. The question is, do we have enough evidence to support uh, bringing the alkyne phosphatase uh, to clearly normal levels? So I think normalizing of uh, bilirubin has clearly been associated with a benefit. And that's, from my perspective, undoubted. You'd want to uh, aim for normalization of bilirubin and the mechanism you're going to achieve that is by turning off hepatic or cholestatic inflammation and uh, secretory defects, um, which might require additional uh, treatment and um, bringing the alkyne phosphatase down to, uh, let's say, below 100 or something. In patients that have previously not well responded and that are far advanced, you might consider that. But on the other hand, alkyne phosphatase is a marker that we're seeing going up in, uh, in advanced disease stages. So it might be difficult to achieve that. And it's not all coming from disease activity, but sometimes related to the disease stage, meaning um, maybe a cirrhotic patient. And a total different look at that could be to really try to normalize symptoms in these patients. And I'm aligned with you that we should take any measure to try to get the patient as symptom burden-free as possible. No, I agree. Just in closing, there was an interesting abstract. There was a poster that suggested that the benefit of alkaline phosphatase reduction to less than 1.5 was only seen in patients that had a uh, bilirubin uh, of greater than 0.6. So bilirubin of less than 0.6 seemed to be more important to drive outcomes as opposed to alkaline phosphatase normalization versus less than 1.5. Well, it's been a great discussion, and I think we've been given the privilege of reviewing all the PBC abstracts. I'll turn it over to you for closing remarks. Well, thanks, Chris, for joining me in this uh, quick abstract uh, review session. It's been uh, a good chat, and uh, thank you to all the listeners for tuning in today. Uh, have a good day. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2ed.com for more information.